This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. Can everybody hear me? I like to roam around a little bit, so it's good. I have a clicker. I didn't have a clicker last night. So Jason's absolutely correct. It's, it's not if, it's when it's going to happen. Um, and I'm amazed after October 1st shooting the number of uh, mass casualty incidents that have happened. Um, ironically, uh, where we trained at Grady Memorial Hospital in Atlanta, Georgia, we have had the distinct, I guess, kind of a, kind of a weird opportunity that uh, we've had multiple uh, residents in our class uh, be the lead physicians or the physicians on duty during very large mass casualty incidents. Number one, uh, Dr. Sasson, Camilla Sasson, uh, in, in Colorado, or, uh, she was the physician on, on duty during, the, dur- during that shooting there. Um, Dr. Prostowski here at Ala Vista, uh, myself, um, the October 1st shooting in Las Vegas, and then most recently we had a physician that was on duty during the Parkland, uh, Parkland shooting. So small world, uh, but it kind of just shows kind of where society is unfortunately going to. Uh, there are some videos in here that are highly emotional. Uh, it's okay if you need to step away. Go ahead and step away. Um, this basically encompasses the first responder response to the event, uh, the hospital response to the event, the lessons learned, because this really kind of changed the way we thought or we think about mass casualty incidents. So that being said, we'll get started. So it starts with a video. It's actually a pretty, pretty accurate video with the timeline of the events, uh, and uh, it kind of corresponds with the after-action report that uh, FEMA did, as well as the law enforcement. Why are the people laying on the ground? Why are the people laying on the ground? It's 10 p.m., and more than 20,000 people are watching country singer Jason Aldean at the Route 91 Harvest Festival. (laughs) Across the street, the gunman Stephen Paddock is in a corner suite on the 32nd floor of the Mandalay Hotel. He planned his attack meticulously. He had assembled an arsenal, bolted an exit door shut, installed surveillance cameras in the hallway, and calculated his elevation and distance from the crowd. A few minutes into the show, Paddock fires what appear to be single rounds from his hotel room. Video timestamps reveal that this happened after 10.05. Why doesn't Paddock fire more rounds at first? There are at least two theories. He's checking that the range and trajectory of his gunshots match the calculations he made, or he's firing at fuel tanks in the nearby airport. Whatever the reason, an uneasiness fills the crowd and people move toward the exit. 30 seconds later, we hear what sounds like automatic gunfire. It's the first of 12 bursts Paddock fired at the festival. More people begin to leave at the rear, and lights are turned on. Around the time of this first burst, security officer Jesus Campos is looking into a separate incident when he happens to come across the door Paddock had sealed shut. Paddock appears to be alerted to Campos as he is leaving, and fires through the hotel door, wounding Campos in the leg. 
Campos takes cover in a doorway and calls in the shooting on his radio. The police and armed security officers begin to respond from within the hotel. 36 seconds after the first burst, Paddock fires a second one into the crowd. The cracking sounds you hear are bullets passing nearby. The intensity suggests Paddock was aiming very near this area by the front of stage, the densest part of the crowd. There is a short interval here of 17 seconds. People begin to flee again. But then a third burst of fire opens up. The changing pitch of the crack suggests Paddock is spraying the bullets around the area. A fourth burst hits the crowd just 20 seconds later. By our count, Paddock has now fired over 300 rounds in less than two minutes. The scenes that unfold at this point are distressing. There are multiple injuries stage left, and people begin to treat the wounded around them. At this point, there's a break in the shooting of almost 1 minute and 50 seconds. We don't know what Paddock is doing during this interval. It's possible he fired down the hallway again. We have reporting that by now, Campos has been joined by hotel engineer Stephen Shook, who reports gunfire on his hotel radio. It's at the end of the hallway. Uh, I, can't, I can't tell you what room. He looked like he fired down the hallway when I got close to the door. Whatever the reason, this break in the shooting allowed many people to move to safety. At 10.08, a police car arrives along Las Vegas Boulevard. A minute later, police officers are moving along a wall in the direction of Mandalay Bay to get eyes on the shooter. They direct fleeing concert goers back into the venue and away from gunfire. Hey, you guys! Get down! Go that way! Get out of here! There's gunshots coming from over there! Then Paddock fires a fifth burst. It's around 22 bullets in three short volleys. We hear this same burst from a different angle, at the Mandalay, where cab driver Corey Langdon was filming. Here's what it sounds like up close. Our reporting suggests that Paddock was positioned directly above the camera at this point. Then, just 40 seconds later, you can hear very dull and hollow gunfire. Now it sounds like it's coming from um, farther away. These rounds were not picked up by cameras recording in the festival at this time. That, plus our additional analysis, suggests this is Paddock firing indoors again, possibly toward Campus and Shook, who are still in the hallway. This lull in shooting outside lasted just over a minute and allowed more people to flee. But then, a sixth burst of fire. Twenty seconds later, in a seventh burst, Paddock appears to take aim at the police. Just 20 feet away, more police are taking cover behind a patrol car. 
They take direct fire and call it in over the radio. It's now been over six minutes since the shooting began and the area at stage right is mostly empty. But people are still taking cover at stage left when Paddock fires an eighth burst. Meanwhile, at the Mandalay, Paddock fires a ninth burst of fire right over a line of cabs and into the crowd. Taxi driver Corey Langdon still sees no signs of panic. Where are the cops at? I'm right here by the porch at Mandalay Bay and everything just seems to be normal here. And hotel guests are still by the lobby. You guys, there's... But actually, police were there. Up in the hotel, two officers are closing in on the gunman. I'm inside the Mandalay Bay on the 31st floor. I can hear the automatic fire coming from one floor ahead. One floor above us. And even as police are responding both inside and outside the hotel, Paddock unleashes his 10th burst of fire. More police cars approach along Las Vegas Boulevard. Control, we need all units stop coming further along people are fleeing through the rear between bursts keep your head down run this way nearly a minute and 10 seconds pass before his 11th assault by now paddock is no longer firing in long steady bursts keep your head down run that way We don't know why, but he may be struggling with a sluggish weapon or using a different gun. He fires his 12th and final burst as Corey Langdon leaves the Mandalay. It's less than 50 rounds. The rate of fire slows, and at five seconds it's the shortest of his bursts. All the taxi drivers are gone now. It's 10.17 and concert goers are still fleeing at the far side of the venue. Is there somebody out there? Twelve minutes after the first bullet was fired, police close in on the gunman on the 32nd floor. By now, Paddock is no longer firing on the crowd and police continue to move closer to his room. They evacuate guests. We're doing evacuations as we're working our way down the hallway. We're about 23 guns and hundreds of rounds of ammunition inside Paddock's suite. By our count, he fired close to 900 rounds at the festival. The police say he fired another 200 into the hallway. Paddock was found dead from a self-inflicted gunshot. The 64-year-old killed at least 58 people, and over 500 were wounded. It was one of the deadliest shootings in modern American history.
So 11 minutes, uh, 1,100 rounds. Could have been much worse. He had about 10,000 unspent rounds, multiple other weapons that he didn't uh, even fire. Um, kind of interesting note uh, about uh, Stephen Paddock is that he uh, was a relatively mindful gun owner uh, before 2016. Um, you know, he had about eight weapons, handguns, hunting rifles, things like that, no assault rifles or anything. From 2016 to 2017, he purchased 55 assault rifles um, during that time. Um, also uh, purchased uh, more than 100 um, uh, assault um, weapon gear, uh, expanded uh, rounds, uh, bump stocks, etc. So, um, I mean, we can have an entire class on, you know, why that wasn't flagged. But uh, we'll just go on through through the through the lessons learned and some of the challenges that we had. It's really kind of changed the mindset of how we respond to a mass casualty incident. Uh, what we've always been taught in the past is everybody goes to the scene, um, we sift and sort, uh, we take people to the local area hospitals that make sense, uh, and we go from there. When you have 22,000 adult individuals uh, flee the event and go to area hospitals at their own command, it kind of changes the, the structure of things. So Route 90 Festival is uh, a large outdoor uh, festival, it's 17 and a half acres, uh, of, of usable space used for multiple outdoor events. Uh, this is an overview of uh, the Las Vegas Boulevard. Who has been to Las Vegas? Yeah, I figured that with all the college kids here. So, um, so there's the Mandalay Bay. Uh, venues right across the street. You can see the command post at Station 11. It's kind of important because it wasn't uh, in range of, uh, of, of the weapons or any, any gunfire, so we were able to operate uh, command out of that fairly safely. Uh, those fuel tanks, as you can see there, uh, there were spent rounds in the fuel tanks. He purchased a 308 magazine, which about a, has a thousand, uh, mil, a thousand meters of, of effective range. Uh, and he was he was trying to shoot out those those fuel tanks to hopefully get them ignite and maybe keep people on the fairgrounds. This is a picture of inside the fairgrounds prior to the shooting, and you can see the Mandalay Bay uh, right up behind there. Uh, it's actually a pretty relatively close uh, proximity. A blueprint of uh, of the event. Uh, there's your medical tent. Um, really, you know when you when you think about these events and, and setting up a medical tent, I mean, this medical tent was set up just like any other medical tent was in, pr in prior, prior years. I mean, it had band-aids, it had four-by-fours, it had maybe, maybe some, some tools to resuscitate one patient, uh, one sick patient, but definitely not the number of victims that we saw. That's uh, a Metro Command Post. Uh, next slide is uh, Engine 11. This is the first engine that was able to witness uh, what was going on. Dispatch engine 11. Engine 11. Dispatch, you got a large crowd running from the uh, music festival down here. You got reports of anything? It sounds like gunfire. That's a negative, sir. Uh, overview from uh, 
the Mandalay Bay, uh, the yellow is the effective range of a 223 or like a, an AR-15 is what we call it. Uh, it's about 800 meters, and the red is the effective range of a 308 rifle. Um, and this really kind of shows when we go through the slides later is, is a lot of these people were in danger, and they didn't even know they were in danger. In fact, a lot of the crews, police, and, and EMS agencies were also in danger as well. And if you get motion sick, I apologize. See the fuel tanks there. This kind of shows where the command post is. That's Las Vegas Boulevard there. All right, so more than 800 patients. Uh, a lot of the patients were, most of the patients were treated in, in, in Nevada. However, people transported and self-transported themselves back to California, Texas, and Arizona. 422 people were shot, over 500 total gunshot wounds. 58 people were killed. 13 area hospitals responded. Uh, more than 250 patients transported themselves to local area hospitals. Again, this kind of changes the way we are uh, now preparing and going to be responding in, in the future. Most of these people um, egressed uh, northeast um, towards my hospital, which is Sunrise Hospital, where we took care of uh, 260 patients. Um, 212, 215 were actually registered. Um, and there was multiple resources, community ambulance, MedicWest, AMR, um, about 161 fire department personnel also responded that, that evening. Just to, to honor the other fire departments that helped us that night, um, I'm not going to busy you guys with that slide, but that is a pretty huge uh, fire department response. Over 161 individual firefighters were on scene. So nine hours and 27 minutes uh, on task, over 15 hours of, uh, of uh, dispatch that we had to go through. So challenges for first responders, uh, victim egress. So egress means, you know, the victims didn't stay in one place. They went from you know the 17 and a half acre uh, to what you will see about a four square mile area uh, and then distraction calls um, you know who's who's here heard of the mumbai mumbai india attack or mumbai style attack um, that's what we thought we were dealing with it's basically uh, somebody attacks one area that's highly populated people go to other areas where other attackers are there to attack them there and then the final destination is they attack the hospitals so 17 and a half uh, acres expanded into about three and a half square miles very quickly. We've got some cell phone footage that will show you how that, how that expanded. Um, just to show the velocity of the egress of the patients, this is uh, some traffic from Engine 32. Command, Engine 32. Engine 32, you have a division supervisor. What do you need? And route to my division chief, we've been flagged down. We have a victim shot in the neck in front of Hooters. I need an ambulance here, please. Copy that. 
make that three ambulances total. I have three total gunshot wound victims in front of Hooters. Command, engine 32. Engine 32. Yeah, Chief, I have a total of six gunshot wound victims here. I have one patient that's been brought up that is 419 in the vehicle. We're going to need Metro to secure the scene. We're going to need two additional fire department units and a total of six ambulances. So Engine 32 was on their way to their collection point, um, and basically their collection point came to them. I mean, that traffic was about two minutes of, of time. It went from one victim to three victims to six victims, um, and then, you know, we, we stopped recording at that point. Um, the next slide is going to basically show an overview of the concert, uh, and, it, and it correlates with the dispatch and the traffic from Las Vegas Metro Police Department. It kind of shows actually the area and, and it, uh, what was being assaulted, as well as uh, um, the aggression of patients um, and kind of the timeline of the shooting. See right up there on the corner, that's engine, that's engine 11. That was what you guys were hearing before. So this is a cell phone, actual cell phone uh, uh, from that night. And it's basically 21, 22,000 people that were there. Um, kind of packed all of the cell phones in one area. But that's 17 and a half uh, acre area. Uh, this is when the shooting started. Uh, you can see the Tropicana Hotel up here. This is Las Vegas Boulevard, uh, Mandalay Bay here. You can see how it expanded pretty rapidly. And then the final expansion of uh, uh, footage all the way down here on South Las Vegas Boulevard. Uh, there are people on the runway. They break through the barriers of the runway. Um, they had to shut down the tarmac for about 30 minutes to an hour. Um, the executive hangar is right here. Um, we'll get to a slide there. It's actually uh, kind of interesting. But this is the largest crime scene since 9-11, since the Twin Towers. So... Could you imagine how difficult it was for our law enforcement and fire department personnel to manage this? Uh, the number of victims, most of them were on stage left. 
some of the victims um, later expired um, outside of the fairgrounds. Um, some of the victims expired uh, on their way to local hospitals. So this is Sheldon Adelson. Everybody know who Sheldon Adelson is? Rich right winger from uh, uh, from Las Vegas. Uh, so this is his jet. He has multiple jets. So the the, the patrons actually went went into his hangar. Um, the doors on this jet were open, and a handful of the uh, cowboys went into the jet and proceeded to drink every single ounce of alcohol that was on the jet. So I don't blame him. So distraction calls. This is um, uh, Mumbai, India. This is actually what happened there. This is what we thought was happening in Las Vegas that night. I know that uh, when when I got there, I was uh, I was uh, I was paged. Um, I got in my car, basically was listening to the radio, and it was saying like you know two people dead, multiple injured. So I thought this was going to be a normal Friday or Saturday night in Las Vegas. Um, as soon as I showed up, saw multiple ambulances, Ubers, trucks in the ambulance bay. Knew that uh, this night was much different. Walked into the emergency department, saw multiple people with multiple gunshot wounds all over the emergency department. And there's no way I thought one person could have done this. Um, the next thing turned to the security of my staff and the hospital to make sure that we were safe, um, that this wouldn't be a Mumbai-style attack. But these are uh, distraction calls. Uh, that happened for about an hour after the initial event. And the distraction calls, I mean, you guys can understand. You guys saw how people ran out and kind of went all over the valley. Um, people would run into their casino screaming and yelling, sometimes with blood on themselves. Um, and so if you were just sitting there and you saw, you know, somebody run in, say, I've been shot or somebody's shooting, um, it's going to create a distraction call. However, we didn't know that. We thought this was the real deal. North Division, go ahead. Hey, Chief, we're getting reports from bystanders that they saw somebody go into an RV directly across the street from where we're at, wearing fatigues and a black duffel bag. And six, be advised we're getting reports on Mandalay Bay, the top of Mandalay Bay at the bar. We currently have a another active shooter up there. have reports that there's an active shooter at New York, New York, and shots heard from Hooters. We have reports of active shooters now at Hakkasan and New York, New York. I have not confirmed that. Also getting reports that shots are being fired at MGM as well. Shots fired MGM. We now have report of an active shooter at the Tropicana. Active shooter at the Tropicana. Command from North Branch, emergency traffic. We have people on the roof of the Tropicana, at least two people on the roof of the Tropicana. Emergency traffic, emergency traffic. Uh, shots fired in the Tropicana. Shots fired in the Tropicana. Command from North Branch. We're getting people evacuating out of the Excalibur reporting that there's a fire in there. Uh, Chief, uh, Chief Blackburn's receiving reports of shots fired in the Planet Hollywood, and I see strobes going off inside of the Mandalay. But Chief Blackburn just came in here. He's reporting shots fired at Caesars now. Be advised we are currently being, receiving reports of an active shooter at McCarran Airport. Repeat, active shooter at McCarran Airport. And be advised we're getting reports on the 34th floor of Mandalay Bay. There's been an explosion in the 32nd, 33rd, and 34th floor on fire. Come on, we just had a shock tank show up unintended right where EMS France is set up at Alibaba and Giles. We're uh, relocating from the area. Command operations also, we're getting reports of um, hostages being held currently at uh, New York, New York. Emergency traffic, uh, Force Protection 6 is reporting shots fired at the New York, New York. 
crazy, right? I mean, be, being live during that and, and hearing what was going on, um, you know, we thought this was it. And, you know, this is kind of, you know, the, the Las Vegas Metro Police Department and pre-hospital um, agencies, um, the hospital. We practice in malls. We practice in schools. We practice in kind of confined areas. Um, something so difficult to, uh, to prepare for, uh, but this, unfortunately, could be the possible new reality. So our response uh, or our challenges from our first responders, uh, patient egress, uh, inability to establish real collection zones, uh, practicing basically in a hot environment. Um, you saw the effective range of his weapons. If you were to basically just, you know, aimed at one of those uh, police or fire uh, engines, uh, those engines were actually in a hot zone. Um, and then distraction calls. Each one of those distraction calls, you know, we, we have a, a MACTAC or a rescue task force that we had to send out to, to each one of those. Uh, hospital response, um, the physicians here that you see here, uh, trauma surgeons, general surgeons, uh, surgical residents, pediatric surgeons, uh, we used at Sunrise Hospital pretty much um, every, every type of surgical asset you could possibly imagine, and if it wasn't for the teamwork of the nurses, physicians, ancillary staff that evening, um, a lot of people would have perished. So our, our, our issues were the same thing, was patient egress. People, people drove themselves to the hospital. You know, so this was a high-velocity uh, uh, event. Uh, preparing for influx of patients. How do you prepare your emergency department or your hospital when you could potentially get 260 shooting victims? Um, a lot of them uh, were, were gravely injured. Um, and triage. How do you triage something so rapidly? I mean, you know, when we, when we practice these MCIs, it's 20, 30. It's, it's easy to triage 20 to 30 of them. Uh, but when 200 of them get dropped on your doorstep, it's very difficult to triage them and put them in the appropriate spaces. Uh, crisis standards of care, what did we do that night that we don't do any other time uh, during the day? So uh, there's a lot of things that the Joint Commission or, or, or CMS or the government um, for hospital and patient safety uh, that we do on a daily, ma daily matter, we, we pretty much had to completely override those processes in order to deliver uh, efficient um, and fast, effective care. Um, and then our lessons learned. So uh, we have uh, uh, two trauma centers in Las Vegas, University Medical Center, which is a level one, uh, which is like the highest level of trauma center. Uh, this is Sunrise Hospital. This is my hospital. That's a level two trauma center. Desert Springs Hospital is not a trauma center. Um, and it will kind of make sense of how and why uh, Sunrise Hospital, Desert Springs Hospital, saw a lot of patients that evening because of the self-transport route. Again, overview, event. Most of the people went northeast. <clears throat> Up to uh, Maryland Parkway and to Sunrise Hospital. So if you use Siri, who uses Siri? <coughs> okay. It takes you to Desert Springs Hospital. Desert Springs Hospital is not a trauma center. If you use Google Maps, it takes you to Sunrise Hospital, which is a level two trauma center. So who uses Google Maps? Okay, you guys are probably gonna live because you went to a trauma center. Just kidding. So um, just kind of, it's weird, right? Because a lot of these people weren't from Las Vegas, so they didn't know what hospital to go to. They just typed in, they didn't type in trauma center. They typed in an emergency department, which makes total sense. But you know, the, the guys over at, at, at Desert Springs did a fantastic job with what they normally do not see every night. Uh, just 
quickly go through the area hospitals that saw patients. So 13 area hospitals saw patients. This is a Valley Health System. Again, this is Desert Springs Hospital. They're not a trauma center. They do not have the trauma resources or capability as we do. Um, Dignity Health Community Hospital, they do have a level three trauma center. They took care of about 58 patients that evening. Um, this is the level one trauma center. Even though they only saw 104 patients, a couple reasons why um, is the, the police department uh, blocked off I-15, which is a direct route from the incident to University and Medical Center. Uh, so that kind of limited the number of self-transports they received. However, since they didn't receive a lot of patients that evening, they took every single one of the transfers out from non-trauma centers and helped us in that manner. And this is uh, my hospital system. You see Sunrise Hospital, so 212 patients. That's kind of like the, the real number. However, um, people didn't wait to get registered or verified or anything like that. They got bandaged, treated, and were sent on their way. So 16, uh, 16 hospitals in the area, 13 participated in this. 639 patients were treated. The amazing thing, only 14 people who arrived at the area hospitals died. So that is a testament to our healthcare system, our healthcare workers, uh, and um, the, the, the hard work that they did that night. So 14 people that arrived to area hospitals alive, only, uh, um, only, uh, only 14 of them died. So a lot of people arrived very gravely injured, uh, but we were able to save quite a bit. So it's a huge save percentage. So this is Sunrise Hospital. You guys are way too young to know the movie Casino. Who knows the movie Casino? So Sunrise, uh, Las Vegas was basically founded by the mob, right? I mean, I think everybody knows that. This hospital in particular was where the mafia used to live. So they, this was self-funded by the mafia. So there's tunnels underneath the, the hospital that uh, people could, could bring victims in or, or, or mob in, uh, mobs in, and in order to deliver some care. Uh, we are building a new emergency tower right over here. And so when they were digging up this you know, mob-funded uh, parking lot. There was quite a few bodies that were found. So just joking, but could be. There was a time capsule. We thought it was like, you know, some mafia time capsule, but it wasn't. Uh, but it, it, it's, it used to be in an affluent area. Now it's a, a level two trauma center in a, in a very rough neighborhood. Very busy emergency department, 115,000 adult-only visits per year. So that's a pretty, pretty humming emergency department. We see a hot, lot of high-level acuity trauma. Uh, this is just the uh, leads of our departments. Uh, so uh, demographics, 212 patients. So unidentified patients. This was an issue because, I mean, everybody's been to an event to where you weren't allowed to bring your backpack or your purse or anything like that. Well, that happened here, so we had difficulty because a lot of people didn't have any ID. ID. So we had to ID them on tattoos, what they were wearing, et cetera, et cetera. Plus, it stressed the registration process. If nobody has any ID, you know, we put them in as a trauma Bob or a trauma Debbie or whatever. Well, that was a process that we used prior to October 1st. Now we use the no identification system to where it doesn't repeat itself. Um, we'd have to go through about 2,000, 2000 victims before it repeated itself. However, we saw a lot of tra trauma Bobs and a lot of trauma Debbies. Um, so medical error can, can happen. Uh, w when that occurs. So 64 admissions, 31 patients to the ICU. So those 31 patients were extremely critical. We did 20 plus surgeries in the first basically 10 hours of this event. These are life-saving, we call salvage surgeries. Um, and the only reason why we were able to do this 
uh, and think of this if you go into medicine. Uh, medicine is a sacrifice, and a ton of people sacrifice uh, their, their own safety um, to come in and take care of these folks. So we had 100 physicians and nurse practitioners arrive just at this hospital alone, and over 200 nurses and ancillary staff. So what do you do to your emergency department to prepare for, for an influx of patients? Well, uh, I, 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 I talk about lessons learned. Well, we really lucked out. This was not flu season. We didn't have a bunch of holding patients in the emergency department. Our ER was relatively empty, um, but you still have to prepare. So we cohorted all of our active patients to one area of our emergency department. So we had uh, some real estate to take care of the, the patients that were coming in, moved all admitted patients upstairs, I moved all of our psych. We do take care of a lot of drunk people in Las Vegas for some reason. I'm not sure, probably because the drinks are like this big. Um, and who who knows what AMA is? So against medical advice, right? This is you know, your patient in room 12 is leaving AMA doc, and everybody's like, whatever, sure, fine, leave. Um, so it really. That's kind of what happened. I mean, people sat around and, and we were, they were cohorted in a certain area that all of a sudden we had to take over that area and they saw that people were shot and, and this was a huge event and they realized that their diarrhea just wasn't that bad. Um, I don't know if my, is my joke going to even land on this crowd? Maybe. We'll see. Like, except one guy. So I'm running around the emergency department. I see this guy limping around. It uh, doesn't look like he's a concert goer. And I was like, sir, have you been shot? How can I help you? Have you been shot? How can I help you? And he said, uh, no, doc, a shopping cart uh, hit my leg. Um, and I was like, unless the shopping cart shot your leg, you can get out of my ER. <laughs> I left out the F word on purpose. Friendly. Friendly. Yeah, my friendly ER. Uh, this is my team uh, enjoying some cocktails uh, about a week after the event, you know, celebrating this, uh, coming together as a group, sharing stories. Uh, you know, mental health is, is part of taking care of each other, just like Jason said. Number one, take care of the patient. Number two, take care of each other. Timeline of events. Uh, 22-25, we, we, we saw our first private vehicle. So when you look at the 800 people that were injured, close to 70% of those patients transported themselves to the area hospitals. That's a big issue. I mean, that's something that, you know, we in Las Vegas has changed what, what we do and how we respond. Uh, 2229, our first ambulance. And when you talk about ambulances, if you were not critically injured, it was an ambulance with five or six people in it. Uh, administrator on call. Uh, triaging and creating real estate in your emergency department was hugely important. We had four neurosurgeons that showed up that evening. We had anesthesiologists, cardiothoracic surgeons. Um, getting somebody from the emergency department to the ICU in an hour on a normal regular day, it does not happen. Um, so what we did is anybody who had a GSW to the head was isolated, their airway was protected, they were hemodynamically unstable, they didn't know to, need to go to the operating room, they went directly upstairs and they were cared for by our neurosurgeons. Same kind of thing with any chest, abdomen wounds. Um, if they were stabilized, uh, they didn't need to go to a surgical acid right away, we transported them directly upstairs to be cared for by our anesthesiologist and our pulmonary critical care team, which is completely unheard of, and it's something that's never been written down before. Co-triage is basically, you know, MCI. Uh, first five surgeries were done um, about two hours uh, after the incident. So 100 physicians, 200 ancillary services, ancillary staff. We had pediatric cardiothoracic surgeons doing cardiothoracic surgery in adult patients and pediatric surgeons doing exploratory laparotomy. 
somebody gets shot in the belly, open them up, clamp the bleeding, stop the bleeding, move on. Um, that's something that uh, is, is pretty crazy because a lot of those folks have not touched an adult patient in 15 to 20 years. This is our census. Um, hospital medicine, um, you know, integral part of creating space was creating discharges upstairs. So our hospital medicine colleagues discharged about 180 patients in the first 24 hours. Uh, and we actually returned to normal ER operations at 11 a.m. So kind of what we do in the ER, right? So 56 surgeries basically in the first 24 hours. This just shows the velocity and the speed of which, we, uh, which the patients came in, not, not only just to our hospital, but every hospital, but this is the data from our hospital. This is per minute. This is number of patients. So you can see in the first hour how many patients we received. So 124 uh, gunshot wounds, uh, 58 surgeons first 24 hours. We saw uh, 10 patients that came in DOA, or when we'll talk about uh, uh, triage and a mass casualty incident. So those are patients that were, were dead on arrival. Uh, four were deemed unsalvageable. One died intraoperatively, and one later died of, uh, of brain death. So only 16 patients of so basically the 260 patients that came in um, died at our hospital. So it's an un unbelievable save rate. So I, how familiar is everybody with MCI triage? So mass casualty triage, triage is you by severity illness. So whether you have seconds or minutes before you die, if you have seconds or minutes before you die, you're triaged as a triage level red. Uh, if you have a minute to hour before you die, um, it's, you're triaged as a, as a triage level yellow. If you're walking wounded, you're as a green. So we triage and we cohort you in different areas. Typically, before this happened, we would triage you outside. We would put a tag on you. Then you'd go to your appropriate area. But with the velocity of this event, we were not able to put tags on anybody. So we basically cordoned off the emergency department. Uh, trauma center, station one, was the red station. Uh, station two and station four was the yellow station. And then our ambulatory care areas moved from the south end of the emergency department into the pediatric ED space, expanded into the post-operative care unit, um, and uh, elsewhere in the, in, the in the ground floor of the emergency department. So we had to think really fast of where were we going to put these patients, how were we going to treat them. Um, the red patients and the yellow patients needed to be the patients that were closer to our surgical assets. This is just an example of the tape. So black is deceased. So this was another change. Most of the time, if you have somebody that is brought to your hospital that is already deceased, uh, they don't go inside the emergency department. They get left out in your triage area. Um, however, this it gets changed when somebody's loved one is in the same vehicle um, or somebody brought their own friend or family member that was there. So we brought every single one of the deceased back, had a second look by a physician, um, and then pronounced them at that time. Blueprint of the ER. This is the adult ER. Trauma bays are over here. Station two, station four, ambulatory care area, PZR, PACU. So we expanded into that entire area. Um, running operations that evening, I'm not a big, big runner. Um, and we did not have a good communication system. So I, uh, I needed a radio. So that's kind of one lessons learned is you have to have the ability to be able to communicate not only with everybody in the hospital, but with your staff directly. Uh, Walk-in entrance and ambulance entrance is in the same area. 
Um, trauma area, station two, station four. So these are the ones that were dying. These are the ones that probably needed to go to the OR, had life-saving uh, interventions. Station two and station four, those patients needed airway control. So a tube, put, the, put down their throat, uh, put them on a ventilator. A lot of them needed to have chest tubes for a collapsed lung or things like that. But they didn't need to go directly to the OR. But part of uh, treating trauma victims and doing it dur during an MCI is you always have to over-triage. So you're always reassessing your patients. Uh, because at any given time, a patient that is in the yellow category can start bleeding out and go into the red category. So identification of, of those patients. And it was honestly, it was fairly easy because of the number of physicians and nurse practitioners that we had. We uh, deployed 50 crash carts. These uh, stars here were where our supply were bringing brought in. And so we have a plan, basically surge every single year in Las Vegas. Who wants to guess the, the date? So New Year's Eve. So we see tons more patients on New Year's Eve. So the supply cart was brought in, and we were running out of stuff left and right, so we thought this was going to be the greatest thing in the world. So we ripped open the supply cart, knowing that this is the New Year's Eve supply cart, and it had vomit bags and normal saline. So we have since changed what our surge cart looks like. Uh, Again, reinforcing kind of the way that we triaged our patients upstairs into the ICU as well as into the PACU area. We had multiple GSWs to the extremities that needed the, to go to the operating room, but they didn't need to go to the operating room emergently. Uh, so we put them into the uh, pre-op and the PACU holding area. This is probably one of the only pictures that I've seen of Sunrise Hospital, and this was very e early on during that evening. Uh, patients everywhere. Um, God bless our environmental services agency that had to clean up this stuff. So crisis standards of care. This is the stuff that we had to do and figure out um, during this event that we don't do on a regular basis. So everything in the hospital is, is done basically on a computer. So an x-ray is taken on a computer. It's generated by a computer order, et cetera, et cetera. We didn't have time for that. We had multiple people that needed x-rays. So our chief of radiology just followed an x-ray machine. Everybody seen an x-ray machine? Followed an x-ray machine around with a Sharpie and wrote the results on the patient um, as we got the results. Um, orthopedic surgeons, our orthopedic colleagues came in. They did all of their own work. Their HPs, they admitted their own patients. They didn't bother the trauma surgeons like they would do on a normal, normal, uh, normal day. Neurosurgeons, so we discussed that, dedicated neurosurgery to the ICU. It, for those of you who are going into medicine, just remember this. Neurosurgeons usually are not that easy to find. Okay? I saw four of them that night come in. So blood bank, um, giving blood in a hospital for a good reason is there's a lot of safety measures and safety checks. But when you have multiple people that needed blood products and need blood products fast, our blood bank released two buckets of blood. One bucket of blood was an O negative bucket. Another bucket was an O positive. You give O negative to, to, to female trauma victims, O positive to, to male, male trauma victims. So we were able to get those blood and blood products into those patients pretty rapidly. Just by doing that, that broke a lot of rules. Um, but, you know, the goal here is, unfortunately, when we have Orlando and we have Parkland, we have Las Vegas, is trying to create what is a crisis standard of care? You know, how do we go from normal operating procedures to, to procedures to where we can fa fast uh, and effectively treat our patients? 
Um, the Pixis, it's a machine that holds drugs, right? So, you know, we needed to free up uh, uh, certain medications to give to patients in a rapid fashion, as well as pain medications. And, and so our ED pharmacist just brought down every single amount of medications that we need, and we put, our, put those in our pockets so we didn't have any delays given to those patients. Um, ventilators. Everybody knows what a ventilator is, so it's basically a breathing machine. Um, you typically only put one patient on a breathing machine, but we had to put two patients on a breathing machine. So um, I may be talking a little bit over your head. So tidal volume is basically the amount of air that needs to be blown into a normal adult human body for a breath, right? So what we did is we just put it on an H uh, or a T system uh, and doubled the tidal volume. So myself and... You are a little bit more my size. I was going to pick on Jason. Um, you could put us on the same vent, right? And you just double the tidal volume, and we delivers the same basically breath. Uh, if you put a gigantic fat person, a real skinny person, on the same vent, you, the skinny person's probably going to blow up. <laughs> Not really, but it'll cause lung damage. So, uh, We were lucky because we had two area hospitals that were sister hospitals. So anything that we ran out of, we were able to get to in about 15 to 20 minutes. Uh, we ran out of ch uh, chest tubes. So these are tubes that you get put in somebody's chest for a collapsed lung or blood in the lungs or anything like that. So we improvised and adapted and used uh, endotracheal tubes, tubes that go down your throat. Uh, we ran out of chest tube trays. Um, so we ended up just using one scalpel and um, some instruments from a, uh, from a laceration tray. Uh, laryngoscopes, the, uh, uh, the tool that you use to... to to put people on a ventilator. We ran out of those, so unfortunately we had to reuse that. Level one transfusion, this is a machine that's able to give large amounts of volume um, really fast. We ran out of those, but we were able to uh, get those in from our, our local HCA partners. I uh, won't go through too much of this slide. I think just kind of right here, you know, the Mumbai style attack. So we had great uh, engagement with our security folks. Uh, and our local law enforcement to kind of cordon off the area and make sure that we were practicing a very safe environment. Crisis counselors were on site 24 to 48 hours later. Uh, nutritional teams, when we talk about nutritional teams, the community, um, and you guys have seen this all throughout this country, the community when tragedy happens uh, really reaches out to that tragedy. And, you know, uh, we had things, pizza, burritos, water, donated that a room this size is kind of what we used. I mean, the thing started looking like a Costco. So we had to, we, we had to slow things down, had a sign-up sheet and, and, and organize that, but we, we didn't know, you know, we didn't know that this was going to happen. All right, so, you know, how did we prepare? Well, we really didn't prepare it, uh, to, to this scale of an event, but we've had, you know, Las Vegas is a busy place, so we, we surge every year into the PACU, uh, on New Year's Eve, we had a, uh, a smoke inhalation in incident on the airport that we were able to see 30 to 35 patients. And that actually happened during flu season. So that's a different challenge in and of itself. Uh, it just comes, it came down to great timing, good physician uh, engagement, good nursing engagement, and good communication with our bed, bed flow and supply management. You guys won't get that, so I'll just skip that. All right, so lessons learned. So we talked about these pretty much pretty much during the, during the, during the lecture. Um, I needed a communication system. Um, I ended up walking and running way too much, so a simple radio uh, would, have, would have sufficed. 
documentation, you know, computers break when they see a high large volume, so you have to have some sort of hybrid system in order to take, take care of and manage that. Uh, we talked about the NOAA identification system for our registration, so we don't have multiple trauma bobs or trauma debbies. Um, and then there's opportunity for uh, uh, county-level oversight, and we'll discuss that really quick. But honestly, we really lucked out. This was 10 o'clock in Las Vegas, relatively empty emergency department, not flu season. People answered their phones at 10 o'clock. If this was 2 o'clock in the morning during flu season, it would have been a completely and totally different outcome. So how do we prepare for that? Those are my attention. So it's hospital area command is what we call it. So hospital area command is... Uh, is, you know, EMS, fire agencies, they're all awake. They all have staff. Um, you know, when a hospital gets overrun during something like this and they don't have the 100 doctors or the 200 nurses and nurse uh, ancillary staff show up, how do we utilize the space that's there? So now, Southern Nevada Health uh, District has worked with us to, if something like this were to happen, to set up an area command post within the hospitals and decide what they need. So whether they need resources, manpower, whether they need, you know, an engine company to go get more supplies, X, Y, and Z. This was unheard of prior to, La prior to the Las Vegas shooting, but this is something that we're, we're working on and we're ironing out now. Uh, and community support. I mean, you know, like Jason said, I mean, with, with such tragedy uh, comes, with, comes with a lot of humanity and such great humanity Las Vegas, I moved there in the early 90s. I thought this was a transient city and everybody was some from, from everybody else. Now you see Vegas strong stuff everywhere. I mean, I'm, I myself have a Vegas strong tattoo now. So um, this was fantastic. Uh, this is just a quick personal story. Um, this is one of the patients I took care of. Um, I didn't know she. we had a friend or a family uh, connection uh, until two days later when a friend I went to high school with said, hey, one of my uh, deputies fiance was was shot she was taken taken to the hospital i said well what does she look like well she's brunette like 27 i was like yeah that narrows it down bro this was like a concert um and i said well where was she shot and he said well it was you know she was shot directly in the back and i knew she was she was in hall hall two found her name went up there saw her made sure she was taken care of she's uh she was uh seven months pregnant during this picture so she has a new baby so that's a pretty pretty good thing to to take home after such a tragedy uh, the following is just a video that was uh, was presented by our hockey team uh, last year that kind of just shows the teamwork and, and the sacrifice for everybody that was involved. Take my throne above 
But don't weep for me, cause this will be the labor of my love. Vegas strong. We are Vegas strong. We are Vegas strong. We are Vegas strong. We are Vegas strong. We are. We are. We are Vegas strong. All right. You guys have any questions? I know there was a lot there, and this is pretty much meant to be for a, a, a medical-oriented crowd, but I think this is somebody that is, you know, people who may be going into medicine, or there's a lot of questions regarding ethics. Yes. Um, I, I want to take questions um, from anyone. Um, the rules are you do need to speak into one of these microphones, and keep your questions short. We don't have that much time, and please phrase your question as a question not, you know, your own world view. Okay, we'd really appreciate that. Uh, and if we could start with the uh, undergraduates, does anybody have a, a question? Hi, um, my name is Paisley, and I want to thank you for coming uh, to speak to all of us and the work that you did on that night. Um, a question that I have is, since this incident, have you had the opportunity to speak to other hospitals regarding your experience or talk to them about being more prepared for a situation like this? Yeah, I mean, I think I was talking to Jason last night. I probably have given this lecture to about 24 different hospital systems. And I felt that it's important to bring the lessons that we learned and the crisis standards of care to, to other hospitals to help them better prepare. Um, also, too, we've been kind of uh, uh, nudging on our American College of Emergency Physician and the government, too. The reason why there's not crisis standards of care is people are afraid of getting sued. People are afraid of bringing a bucket of blood to the emergency department to deliver it fast because it, it, it can open up a lawsuit. However, if we have an or organizing um, effort to where, hey, these are the crisis standards of care, this is okay to do during this time, it's going to help other area hospitals. But I think that's... You know, I don't like flying Southwest everywhere or anything like that. Um, and most of the time, I don't take an honorarium. Um, but I think it's very important that, that people hear our story and our message uh, to help them prepare as a community. Okay, well, let's give a Santa Barbara welcome. Or, or, or thank you to Scott, Dr. Scott Schur. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.